0: and Engels on the Paris Commune. 150 years on, Marx's vivid portrait of the world's first working class government still impresses with its short, powerful strokes of such clearness and truth. This extract is taken from Karl Marx's third address to the International Workingmen's Association, written in May 1871 as the Commune fell. The address was included in a collection of articles on the Franco-Prussian War and the Commune titled The Civil War in France, published in 1871. Lasting just 71 heroic days, the Paris Commune was the first ever attempt by the working class to take and hold power in the interests of the masses, the world's first workers state. For more on the Commune, see P. O. Lissagare's History of the Paris Commune, which was published in 1876 and translated into English by Eleanor Marx. Postscript by Frederick Engels on the 20th anniversary of the Commune, an extract. On the 28th of May, the last fighters of the Commune succumbed to superior forces on the slopes of Belleville and only two days later, on the 30th of May, Marx read to the General Council the work in which the historical significance of the Paris Commune is delineated in short, powerful strokes, but with such clearness and above all such truth, as has never again been attained in all the mass of literature which has been written on this subject. If today we look back at the activity and historical significance of the Paris Commune of 1871, we should find it necessary to make a few additions to the accounts given in the Civil War in France. The members of the commune were divided into a majority of the Blanquists, who had also been predominant in the Central Committee of the National Guard, and a minority members of the International Workingmen's Association, chiefly consisting of adherents of the Proudhon School of Socialism. The great majority of the Blanquis at that time were socialist only by revolutionary and proletarian instinct. Only a few had attained greater clarity on the essential principles through Valent, who was a familiar with Germanist scientific socialism. It is therefore comprehensible that in the economic sphere much was left undone, which, according to our view today, the commune ought to have done. The hardest thing to understand is certainly the holy awe with which they remained standing respectfully outside the gates of the Bank of France. This was also a serious political mistake. The bank in the hands of the commune would have been worth more than 10,000 hostages. It would have meant the pressure of the whole of the French bourgeoisie in the Versailles government in favour of peace with the commune. But what is still more wonderful is the correctness of so much that was actually done by the Commune, composed as it was of the Blanquists and the Proudhonists. Naturally, the Proudhonists were chiefly responsible for the economic decrees of the Commune, both for their praiseworthy and their unpraiseworthy aspects, as the Blanquists were for for its political actions and omissions. And in both cases, the irony of history willed, as is usual with Dectonaries, come to the helm, that both did the opposite of what the doctrines of their school prescribed. Prudhon, the socialist of the small peasant and master craftsman, regarded association with positive hatred. He said of it that there was more bad than good in it, that it was by nature sterile, even harmful, because it was a fetter on the freedom of the workers, that it was a pure dogma, unproductive and burdensome in conflict as much for the freedom of the workers as for the economy of labour, that its disadvantages multiplied more swiftly than its advantages, that, as compared with it, competition, division of labour and private property were economic forces. Only for the exceptional cases, as Proudhon called them, of large-scale industry and large industrial units, such as railways, was there any place for the association of workers. By 1871, even in Paris, the centre of handicrafts, large-scale industry had already so much as ceased to be an exceptional case, that by far the most important decree of the Commune instituted an organisation of large-scale industry, and even of manufacturing which was not based only on the association of workers in each factory but also aimed at combining all these associations in one great union in short an organization which as Marx quite rightly says in the civil war must necessarily have led in the end to communism that is to say the direct antithesis of the Proudhon doctrine. And therefore, the commune was also the grave of the Proudhon school of socialism. Today, this school has vanished from French working class circles. Among them now, among the possibilists, no less than among the Marxists, Marxist theory rules unchallenged. Only among the radical bourgeoisie are there still Proudhonists. The Blanquists fared no better. Brought up in the school of conspiracy and held together by the strict discipline which went with it, they started out from the viewpoint that a relatively small number of resolute, well organised men would be able, at a given favourable moment, not only seize the helm of state, but also by energetic and relentless action to keep power until they succeeded in drawing the masses of the people into the revolution and ranging round them the small band of leaders. This conception involved, above all, the strictest dictatorship and centralisation of all the power in the hands of the new revolutionary governments. And what did the Commune, with its majority of these same Blanquists, actually do? In all its proclamations to the French and the provinces, it appealed to them to form a free federation of all French communes with Paris, a national organisation, which for the first time was really to be created by the nation itself. It was precisely the oppressing power of the former centralised government, army, political police and bureaucracy which Napoleon had created in 1798 and since then had been taken over by every new government as a welcome instrument and used against its opponents. It was precisely this power which was to fall everywhere, just as it had already fallen in Paris. From the outset, the commune was compelled to recognise that the working class, once come to power, could not manage with the old state machinery, that in order to not lo- to lose it again, it's only just conquered supremacy, this working class must, on the one hand, do away with the old repressive machinery previously used against itself, and on the other, safeguard itself against its own deputies and officials by declaring them all, without exception, subject to recall at any moment. What had been the characteristic attribute of the former state? Society had created its own organs to look after its common interests, originally through simple division of labour. But these organs, at whose head was the state power, had in the course of time, in pursuance of their own special interests, transformed themselves from the servants of society into the masters of society, as can be seen, for example, not only in the hereditary monarchy but equally in the democratic republic. Nowhere do politicians form a more separate, powerful section of the nation than in North America. There, each of the two great parties, which alternately succeed each other in power, is itself in turn controlled by people who make a business of politics, who speculate on seats in the legislative assemblies of the Union, as well as of the separate states, or who make a living by carrying on agitation for their party, and on its own victory are rewarded with positions." It is well known that the Americans have been striving for 30 years to shake off this yoke which has become intolerable and that in spite of all they can do they continue to sink ever deeper in this swamp of corruption. It is precisely in America that we see best how there takes place the process of the state power making itself independent in relation to society, whose mere instrument it was originally intended to be. Here there exists no dynasty no nobility, no standing army, beyond the few men keeping watch on the Indians, no bureaucracy, with permanent posts or the right to pensions. And nevertheless, we find here two great gangs of political speculators who alternately take possession of the state power and exploit it by the most corrupt means and for the most corrupt ends. And the nation is powerless against these two great cartels of politicians who ostensibly its servants, but in reality exploit and plunder it. Against this transformation of the state and the organs of the state from servants of society into masters of society, an inevitable transformation in all previous states, the commune made use of two infallible expedients. In the first place, it filled all posts, administrative, judicial and educational, by election on the basis of universal suffrage of all concerned, with the right of the same electors to recall their delegate at any time. And in the second place, all officials, high or low, were paid only the wages received by other workers. The highest paid salary paid by the commune to anyone was 6,000 francs. In this way, an effective barrier to place hunting and careerism was set up, even apart from the binding mandates to delegates to representative bodies, which were also added into profusion. The shattering of the former state power and its replacement by a new and really democratic state is prescribed in detail in the third section of the Civil War. But it was necessary to dwell briefly here once more on some of its features, because in Germany particularly, the superstitious belief in the state has been carried over from philosophy into the general consciousness of the bourgeoisie, and even to many workers. According to the philosophical notion, the state is the realisation of the idea, or the kingdom of God on earth translated into philosophical terms the sphere in which eternal truth and justice is or should be realised. And from this follows a superstitious reverence for the state and everything connected with it, which takes root with the most readily as people from their childhood are accustomed to imagine that the affairs and interests common to the whole of society could not be looked after otherwise than as they have been looked after in the past. That is through the state and its well-paid officials. Some people think they have taken quite an extraordinary bold step forward when they have rid themselves of belief in hereditary monarchy and swear by the democratic republic. In reality, however, the state is nothing more but a machine for the oppression of one class by another and indeed in the democratic republic no less than in the monarchy and, at best, an evil inherited by the proletariat after its victorious struggle for class supremacy. Whose worst sides, the proletariat, just like the commune, cannot avoid having to lop off at the earliest possible moment, until such time as a new generation, reared in new and free social conditions, will be able to throw the entire lumber of the state on the scrap heap. Of late, the social democratic Philistine has once more been filled with wholesome terror at the words. Dictatorship of the proletariat. Well and good, gentlemen. Do you want to know what that dictatorship looks like? Look at the Paris Commune. That was the dictatorship of the proletariat. The Paris Commune by Karl Marx. On the dawn of the 18th of March, Paris arose to the thunderburst of Viva la Commune. What is the commune that sphinx so tantalising to the bourgeois mind? The proletarians of Paris the Central Committee in its manifesto of 18th of March. Amidst the failures and treasons of the ruling class, have understood that the hour has struck for them to save the situation by taking into their own hands the direction of public affairs. They have understood that it is their imperious duty and their absolute right to render themselves masters of their own destinies by seizing upon the governmental power but the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. The centralised state power, with its obituous organs of standing army, police, bureaucracy, clergy, organs walked after the plan of a systematic and hierarchical division of labour, originates from the days of absolute monarchy, serving nascent middle-class society as a mighty weapon in its struggle against feudalism. Still, its development remained clogged by all manners of medieval rubbish, senior rights, local privileges, municipal and guild monopolies, provincial constitutions. The gigantic broom of the French Revolution of the 18th century swept away all these relics of bygone times, thus clearing simultaneously the social soil of its last hindrances to the superstructure of the modern state edifice raised under the First Empire, itself the offspring of the coalition wars of old semi-feudal Europe against modern France. During the subsequent regimes, the government placed under parliamentary control, that is, under the direct control of the propertied class, became not only a hotbed of huge national debts and crushing taxes, with its irresistible allurements of place, pelf and patronage, it became not only the bone of contention between the rival factions and adventurers of the ruling class, but its political character changed simultaneously with the economic changes of society. At the same pace at which the progress of modern industry developed, widened, intensified, the class antagonism between capital and labour, the state power assumed more and more the character of the national power of capital over labour, of a public force organised for social enslavement, of an engine of class despotism. After every revolution, making a progressive phase in the class struggle, the purely repressive character of the state power stands out in bolder and bolder relief. The revolution of 1830, resulting in the transfer of government from the landlords to the capitalists, transferred it from the more remote to the more direct antagonists of the working men. The bourgeois republicans, who in the name of the February revolution took the state power, used it for the June 1848 massacres in order to convince the working class that Social republic means the republic entrusting their social subjection, and in order to convince the royalist bulk of the bourgeois and landlord class that they might safely leave the cares and emorments of government to the bourgeois republican. However, after the... Their one heroic exploit of June, the bourgeois republicans had from the front to fall back to the rear of the party order, a combination formed by all the rival fractions and factions of the appropriating classes. Proper form of their joint stock government in the parliamentary republic, with Louis Bonaparte for its president. Thiers was a regime of avowed class terrorism and deliberate insult towards the vile multitude. If the parliamentary republic, as Thiers said, divided them, the different fractions of the ruling class at least, it opened an abyss between the class and the whole body of society outside their spare ranks. The restraints by which their own divisions had under former regimes, still checked the state power were removed by their union and in view of the threatening upheaval of the proletariat they now used the state power mercilessly and ostentatiously as the national war engine of capital against labour. In their uninterrupted crusade against the producing masses, they were, however, bound not only to invest the executive with continually increased powers of repression, but at the same time to divest their own parliamentary stronghold. The National Assembly, one by one, offered all its own means of defence against the executive. The executive in the person of Louis Bonaparte turned them out. The natural offspring of the party order, Republic was the second empire the empire with the coup d'état, its birth certificate universal suffrage for its sanctions and the sword of its scepter professed to rest upon the peasantry the large mass of producers not directly involved in the struggle of capital and labour It professed to save the working class by breaking down parliamentarianism and with it the undisguised observancy of government to the property classes. It professed to save the property classes by upholding the economic supremacy over the working class. And finally, it professed to unite all classes by reviving for all the chimera of national glory. In reality, it was the only form of government possible at the time, when the bourgeoisie had already lost and the working class had not yet acquired the faculty of ruling the nation. It was acclaimed throughout the world as the saviour of society. Under its sway, bourgeois society, freed from political cares, attained a development unexpected even by itself. Its industry and commerce expended to colossal dimensions. Financial swindling celebrated cosmopolitan orgies. The misery of the masses was set off by a shameless display of gorgeous, meretricious and debased luxury. The state power apparently soaring high above society in the very hotbed of all its corruptions, its own rottenness and the rottenness of the society it saved were laid bare by the bayonet of pressure herself eagerly bent upon transferring the supreme seat of the regime from Paris to Berlin. Imperialism is at the same time the most prostitute and ultimate form of the state power with nascent middle class society had commenced to elaborate as a means of its own emancipation from feudalism and which full-grown bourgeois society had finally transformed into a means for the enslavement of labour by capital. The direct antithesis to the empire was the commune, the cry of social republic with which the February revolution was ushered in by the Paris proletariat did but express a vague aspiration after a republic that was not only to supersede the monarchical form of class rule but class rule itself, the commune was the positive form of that republic. Paris, the central seat of the old governmental power and at the same time the social stronghold of the French working class had risen in arms against the attempt of Thiers and the rurals to restore and perpetuate the old government power bequeathed to them by the empire. Paris could resist only because in consequence of this siege it had got rid of the army and replaced it by a national guard, the bulk of which consisted of working men. This fact was now to be transformed into an institution. The first decree of the commune, therefore, was the suppression of the standing army and the substitution for it of the armed people. The commune was formed of the municipal councillors, chosen by universal suffrage in the various wards of the town, responsibly and revocable at short terms. The majority of its members were naturally working men or acknowledged representatives of the working class. The Commune was to be a working, not a parliamentary body, executive and legislative at the same time. Instead of continuing to be the agent of the central government, the police was at once stripped of its political attributes and turned into the responsible and at all times revocable agent of the Commune, so were the officials of all other branches of the administration. From the members of the commune downwards, the public service had to be done at workman's wage. The vested interests in the representation allowances of the high dignitaries of state disappeared along with the high dignitaries themselves. Public function seems to be the private property of the tools of the central government. Not only municipal administration, but the whole initiative hitherto exercised by the state was laid into the hands of the commune having once got rid of the standing army and the police the physical force elements of the old government the commune was anxious to break the spiritual force of repression the pastoral power by the disestablishment and disendowment of all churches as propriety bodies the priests were sent back to the recesses of private life there to feed upon the arms of the faithful and imitation of their predecessors the apostles the whole of the educational institutions were open to the people gratuitously and at the same time cleared of all interference of church and state. Thus not only was education made accessible to all but science itself freed from the fetters which class prejudice and governmental force had imposed upon it. The judicial functionaries were to be divested of that sham independence which had to but served to mask their abject subserviency to all succeeding governments, to which, in turn, they had taken and broken the oaths of allegiance. Like the rest of public servants, magistrates and judges were to be elective, responsible and revocable. Paris Commune was of course to serve as a model to all the great industrial centres of France. The communal regime once established in Paris and the secondary centres, the old centralised government would in the provinces too have to give way to the self-government of the producers. In a rough sketch of national organisation, which the Commune had no time to develop, it states clearly that the Commune was to be the political form of even the smallest country hamlet, and that in the rural di- districts, the standing army was to be replaced by a nas- militia with an extremely short term of service. The rural communities of every district were to administer their common affairs by an assembly of delegates in their central town, and these district assemblies were again to send deputies to the national delegation in Paris, each delegate to be at any time revocable and bound by the monde peratif of his constituents, the formal instructions. The few but important functions which would still remain for a central government, were not to be suppressed, as has been intentionally misstated, but were to be discharged by communal and thereafter responsible agents. The unity of the nation was not to be broken but on the contrary to be organised by communal constitution and to become a reality by the destruction of the state power which claimed to be the embodiment of that unity independent of and superior to the nation itself from which it was but a parasitic excellence. While the merely repressive organs of the old governmental power were to be amputated, its legitimate functions were to be wrested from an authority usurping preeminence over society itself and restored to the responsible agents of society. Instead of deciding once in three or six years which member of the ruling class was to misrepresent the people in parliament, universal suffrage was to serve the people constituted in communes as individual suffrage serves every other employer in the search for the workmen and managers in his business. And it is well known that companies like individuals and matters of real businesses generally know how to put the right man in the right place, and if they for once make a mistake, to redress it promptly. On the other hand, nothing could be more foreign to the spirit of the commune than to supersede universal suffrage by hierarchical investiture. It is generally the fate of completely new historical creations to be mistaken for the counterparts of older, and even defunct forms of social life to which they may bear a certain likeness. Thus the new commune, which breaks with the modern state power, has been mistaken for a reproduction of the medieval communes, which first preceded and afterward became the substratum of that very state power. The communal constitution has been mistaken for an attempt to break up into the federation of small states, as dreamt of by Montesquieu and the Girondins. that unity of great nations which, if originally brought about by political force, was now become a powerful coefficient of social production. The antagonism of the commune against the state power has been mistaken for an exaggerated form of the ancient struggle against over-centralisation. Peculiar historical circumstances may have prevented the classical development, as in France, of the bourgeois form of government and may have allowed, as in England, to complete the great central state organs by corrupt vestries, jobbing councillors and ferocious poor law guardians in the towns and virtually hereditary magistrates in the counties. The communal constitution would have restored to the social body all the forces hitherto absorbed by the state parasite feeding upon and clogging the free movement of society. By this one act, it would have initiated the regeneration of France. The provincial French Middle class saw in the commune an attempt to restore the sway their order had held over the country under Louis-Philippe and which under Louis-Napoleon was supplanted by the pretended rule of the country over the towns. In reality, the communal constitution brought the rural producers under the intellectual lead of the central towns of their districts and there secured to them in the working men the natural trustees of their interests. The very existence of the commune involved as a matter of course local municipal liberty, but no longer as a check upon the now superseded state power. It could only enter into the head of Bismarck, who, when not engaged on his intrigues of blood and iron, always likes to resume his old trade, so befitting his mental calibre, of contributor to Kladrodedach, the Berlin Punch, it could only enter into such a head to ascribe to the Paris Commune aspirations of the old caricature French municipal organisation of 1791, the Prussian municipal constitution which degrades the town governments to mere secondary wills and the police machinery of the Prussian state. The Commune made that catchword of bourgeois revolutions, cheap government, a reality by destroying the two greatest sources of expenditure, the standing army and state functionarism. Its very existence presupposed the non-existence of monarchy, which, in Europe at least, is the normal encumbrance and indispensable cloak of class rule. It supplied the republic with the basis of really democratic institutions, but neither cheap government nor the true republic was its ultimate aim. They were its mere concomitants the multiplicity of interpretations to which the commune has been subjected and the multiplicity of interests which construed it in their favour show that it was a thoroughly expansive political form while all the previous forms of government had been emphatically repressive its true secret was this It was essentially a working class government, the product of the struggle of the producing against the appropriating class, the political form at last discovered under which to work out the economical emancipation of labour. Except on this last condition, the communal constitution would have been an impossibility and a delusion. The political rule of the producer cannot coexist with the perpetuation of his social slavery. The commune was therefore to serve as a lever for uprooting the economical foundation upon the rest of existence of classes and therefore of class rule. With labour emancipated, every man becomes a working man and productive labour ceases to be a class attribute. It is a strange fact, in spite of all the tall talk and all the immense literature for the last 60 years about emancipation of labour, no sooner do the working men anywhere take the subject into their own hands with a will, than uprises at once all the apologetic phraseology of the mouthpieces of present society with its two poles of capital and wage slavery. The landlord now is but the sleeping partner of the capitalist. As if the capitalist society was still in the purest state of virgin innocence with its antagonism still underdeveloped, with its delusions still unexploded, with its prostitute realities not yet laid bare. The commune, they exclaim, intends to abolish property, the basis of all civilization. Yes, gentlemen, the commune intended to abolish the class property, which makes the labour of many the wealth of the few. It aimed at the expropriation of the expropriators. It wanted to make individual property a truce by transforming the means of production, land and capital, now chiefly the means of enslaving and exploiting labour into mere instruments of free and associated labour. But this is communism, impossible communism. Why, those members of the ruling class who are intelligent enough to perceive the impossibility of continuing the present system and they are many, have become the obtrusive and foul-mouthed apostles of cooperative production. If cooperative production is not to remain a sham and a snare, it is to supersede the capitalist system if united cooperative societies are to regulate national production upon a common plan, thus taking it under their own control and putting an end to the constant anarchy and periodical convulsions which are the fatality of capitalist production, what else, gentlemen, would it be but communism, possible communism? The working class did not expect miracles from the commune. They have no ready-made utopias to introduce par decree de propos. They know that in order to work out their own emancipation and along with that higher form to which present society is irresistibly tending by its own economical agencies, they will have to pass through long struggles, through a series of historic processes transforming circumstances and men. They have no ideals to realize but to set free the elements of the new society with which the old collapsing bourgeois society itself is pregnant in the full consciousness of their historic mission and with heroic resolve to act up to it the working class can afford to smile at the coarse invective of the gentleman's gentleman with pen and inkhorn, and at the didactic patronage of well-wishing bourgeois doctrinaries Pouring forth their ignorant platitudes and sectarian crotchets in the oracular tone of scientific infallibility, when the Paris Commune took the management of the revolution in its own hands, when plain working men for the first time dared to infringe upon the governmental privilege of their natural superiors, and under circumstances of an example difficulty performed at its salaries the highest of which barely amounted to one-fifth of what, according to high scientific authority, is the minimum required for a secretary to a certain metropolitan school board. The old world writhed in convulsions of rage at the sight of the red flag, the symbol of the Republic of Labour floating over the Hotel de la Ville. And yet... This was the first revolution in which the working class was openly acknowledged as the only class capable of social initiative, even by the great bulk of the Paris middle class, shopkeepers, tradesmen, merchants, the wealthy capitalists only accepted. The commune had saved them by a sagacious settlement of that ever-recurring cause of dispute among the middle class themselves, the debtor and the creditor accounts. The same portion of the middle class, after they had assisted in putting down the working men's insurrection of June 1848, had been at once unceremoniously sacrificed to their creditors by the then constituent assembly. But this was not their only motive for now rallying around the working class. They felt that there was one alternative, the commune or the empire, under whatever name it might reappear. The empire had ruined them economically by the havoc it made of public wealth, by the wholesale financial swindling it fostered, by the props it lent to the artificially accelerated centralisation of capital and the concomitant expropriation of their own ranks it had suppressed them politically it had shocked them morally by its orgies it had insulted their Volterianism by handing over the education of their children to the fray it had revolted their national feeling as frenchmen precipitating them headlong into a war which left only one equivalent for the ruins it made the disappearance of the empire In fact, after the exodus from Paris of the high Bonapartist and capitalist Boheme, the true middle-class party of order came out in the shape of the Union Republican, enrolling themselves under the colours of the Commune and defending it against the willful misconstructions of Thiers. Whether the gratitude of this great body of the middle class will stand the present severe trial, time must show. The Commune was perfectly right in telling the peasants that its victory was their only hope. Of all the lies hatched at Versailles and re-echoed by the glorious European penny aligner, one of the most tremendous was that the rurals represented the French peasantry. Think only of the love of the French peasant for the men to whom after 1815 he had to pay the milliard indemnity. In the eyes of the French peasant, the very existence of a great landed proprietor is in itself an enroachment on its conquests of 1789. The bourgeois in 1848 had burdened his plot of land with the additional tax of 45 cents in the franc, but then he had he did so in the name of the revolution while now he had fomented a civil war against revolution to shift onto the peasant's shoulders the chief load of the five milliards of indemnity to be paid to the Prussians. The commune on the other hand in one of the first proclamations declared that the true originators of the war would be made to pay its cost. The commune would have delivered the peasant of the blood tax, would have given him a cheap government, transformed his present bloodsuckers than a notary, advocate, executor and other judicial vampires into salaried communal agents elected by and responsible to himself. It would have freed him of the tyranny of the guard Shampetra and the perfect would have put enlightenment by the schoolmaster in the place of stollification by the priest." and the French peasant is, above all, a man of reckoning, he would find it extremely reasonable that the pay of the priest, instead of being extorted by the tax-gatherer, should only depend upon the spontaneous action of the parishioner's religious instinct. Such were the great immediate boons which the rule of the commune and that rule alone held out to the French peasantry. It is therefore quite superfluous here to expatiate upon the more complicated but vital problems which the commune alone was able, and at the same time compelled, to solve in favour of the peasant, viz the hypothecary debt, lying like an incubus upon his parcel of soil, the proletariat foncier, the rural proletariat, daily growing upon it and his expropriation from it enforced at a more and more rapid rate, but the very development of modern agriculture and the competition of capitalist farming. The French peasant had elected Louis Bonaparte President of the Republic, but the party of order created the empire. What the French peasant really wants he commenced to show in 1849 and 1850 by opposing his mayor to the government's perfect, his schoolmaster to the government's priest and himself to the government's gendarmes. All the laws made by the party of order in January and February 1850 were avowed measures of repression against the peasant the peasant was a bonapartiste, because the great revolution with all its benefits to him was in his eyes personified in napoleon the delusion rapidly breaking down under the second empire and in its very nature hostile to the rurals this prejudice of this past how could it have withstood the appeal of the commune to the living interests and urgent wants of the peasantry? All the laws made by the party of order in January and February 1850 were avowed measures of repression against the peasant. The peasant was a bonapartist because the great revolution, with all its benefits to him, was in his eyes a personifying Napoleon. The delusion rapidly breaking down and under the Second Empire, and its very nature hostile in the rurals, this prejudice of the past, how could it have withstood the appeal of the commune to the living interests and urgent wants of the peasantry? The rurals, this was, in fact, their chief apprehension, knew that three months free communication of communal Paris with the provinces would bring about a general rising of the peasants, and hence their anxiety to establish a police blockade around Paris, so as to stop the spread of the Rinterpest, capital pest and contagious disease. If the commune was thus the true representative of all the healthy elements of French society and therefore the truly national government, it was the same time as a working man's government, as the bold champion of the emancipation of labour, empathetically international. Within sight of the Prussian army, which had annexed to Germany two French provinces, the commune annexed to France the working people all over the world. The second empire had been the jubilee of cosmopolitan black legism. The rakes of all countries are rushing in as its call for a share in its orgies and in the plunder of the French people. Even at this moment the right hand of Thiers is Genesco, the foul Wallachian, and his left hand is Markovsky, the Russian spy. The commune admitted all foreigners to the honour of dying for an immortal cause. Between the foreign war lost by the treason and the civil war fomented by their conspiracy with the foreign invader, the bourgeoisie had found the time to display the patriotism by organising police hunts upon the Germans in France. The commune made a German working man, Leo Frankel, its Minister of Labour. Thiers, the bourgeoisie, the second empire, had continually deluded Poland by loud professions of sympathy, while in reality betraying her too and doing the dirty work of Russia. The commune honoured the heroic sons of Poland, J. Dabrowski and W. Robowski, by placing them at the head of the defenders of Paris and to broadly mark the new era of history it was conscious of initiating under the eyes of the conquering parisians on one side and the bonapartist army led by the bonapartist generals on the other the commune pulled down the colossal symbol of martial glory the vendome colon the great social measure of the commune was its own working existence. Its special measures could but betoken the tendency of a government of the people by the people. Such were the abolition of the night work of journeymen, bakers, the prohibition under penalty of the employer's practice to reduce wages by levying upon the work people, fines under manifold pretexts, a process in which the employer combines in his own person the parts of legislator, judge and executor and filters the money to boot. Another measure of this class was the surrender to associations of workmen, under reserve of compensation of all closed workshops and factories, no matter whether the respective capitalists had absconded or preferred to strike work. The financial measures of the commune, remarkable for their sagacity and moderation, could only be such as were compatible with the state of a besieged town. Considering the colossal robberies committed by the city of Paris by the great financial companies and contractors under the protection of hostmen, the Commune would have had an uncomparably better title to confiscate their property than Louis-Napoleon had against the Orleans family the hojosseren and the english oligarchs who both have derived a good deal of the estates from church plunders were of course greatly shocked at the commune clearing but eight thousand francs out of secularisation While the Versailles government, as soon as it had recovered some spirit and strength, used the most violent means against the Commune, while it put down the free expression of opinion all over France, even to the forbidding of meetings of delegates from the large towns, while it subjected Versailles and the rest of France to an espionage far surpassing that of the Second Empire, while it burnt by its gendarmes, inquisitors all papers printed at Paris and sifted all correspondence from and to Paris. While in the National Assembly the most timid attempts to put in a word for Paris were howled down in a manner unknown to the Chambre en Trouve of 1816, with the savage warfare of Versailles outside and its attempts at corruption and conspiracy inside Paris. Would the commune not have shamefully betrayed its trust by affecting to keep all the decencies and appearances of liberalism as in a time of profound peace? had the government of the commune been akin to that of m thiers there would have been no more occasion to suppress party of order papers at paris than there was to suppress communal papers at versailles it was irritating indeed to the rurals that at the very same time they declared the return to the church to be the only means of salvation for france the infidel commune unearthed the peculiar mysteries of the pipcus nunnery and of the church of st it was a satire upon M.T.S. that, while he showered grand crosses upon the Bonapartist generals in acknowledgement of the mastery in losing battles, signing capitulations and turning cigarettes at the Wilhelm Show, the Commune dismissed and arrested its generals whenever they were suspected of neglecting their duties. The expulsion and arrest by the Commune of one of its members, Blanquet who had slipped in under a false name, had undergone at Lyon six days imprisonment for simple bankruptcy. Was it not a deliberate insult hurled at the forger, Jules that still the Foreign Minister of France, still selling France to Bismarck and still dictating his orders to that paragon government of Belgium? But indeed the Commune did not pretend to infallibility the invariable attribute of all governments of the old stamp it published its doings and sayings it initiated the public into all its shortcomings in every revolution there intrude the side of its true agents men of different stamp some of them survivors of or devotees to past revolutions, without insight into the present movement, but preserving popular influence by their known honesty and courage or by the sheer force of tradition. Others mere brawlers who, by dint of repeating year after year the same set of stereotype declarations against the government of the day, have sneaked into the reputation of revolutionists of the first water. After 18th of March, some such men did also turn up and in some cases contrived to play pre-eminent parts. As far as their power went, they hampered the real action of the working class, exactly as men of that sort have hampered the full development of every previous revolution. They are an unavoidable evil. With time they are shaken off, but time was not allowed to the Commune. Wonderful indeed was the change the Commune had wrought in Paris. No longer any trace of the meretricious Paris of the Second Empire. No longer was Paris the rendezvous of British landlords, Irish absentees, American ex-slaveholders and shoddy men, Russian ex-surf owners and Wallachian billards. No more corpses at the morgue, no nocturnal burglaries, scarcely any robberies in fact, for the first time since the days of February 1848, the streets of Paris were safe, and that without any police of any kind. We, said a member of the Commune, hear no longer of assassination, theft and personal assault. It seems indeed as if the police had dragged along with it to Versailles all its conservative friends. The cocottes, chickens, prostitutes, had refound the scent of their protectors, the absconding men of family, religion and above all property, in their steed the real women of Paris showed again at the surface, heroic, noble and devoted, like the women of antiquity. Working, thinking, fighting, bleeding Paris, almost forgetful in its incubation of a new society, of the cannibals at its gates, radiant in the enthusiasm of its historic initiative. Opposed to this new world at Paris, behold the new world at Versailles, that assembly of the ghouls of all defunct regimes, legitimists, orleans, eager to feed upon the carcass of the nation, with a tale of antediluvian Republicans sanctioning by the presence in their assembly, the slaveholders' rebellion, relying for the maintenance of their parliamentary republic upon the vanity of the senile Montbank at its head. The caricaturing 1789 by holding their ghastly meetings in the Jeu de Pomme. There it was, the assembly, the representative of everything dead in France, popped up in the semblance of life by nothing but the swords of the general of Louis Bonaparte. Paris of all truth, Versailles of lie, and that lie vented through the mouth of Thiers. Thiers tells a deputation of the mayors of the Cene was "'You may rely upon my word which I have never broken.' he tells the assembly itself that it was the most freely elected and most liberal assembly france ever possessed he tells his motley soldiery that it was the admiration of the world and the finest army france ever possessed he tells the provinces that the bombardment of paris by him was a myth If some cannon shots have been fired, it was not the deed of the army of Versailles, but of some insurgents trying to make believe that they are fighting, while they dare not show their faces. He again tells the provinces that the artillery of Versailles does not bombard Paris, but only cannonades it. He tells the Archbishop of Paris that the pretended executions and reprisals attributed to Versailles troops were all moonshine. He tells paris that he was only anxious to free of the hideous tyrants who oppress it and that in fact the paris of the commune was but a handful of criminals the paris of m Thiers was not the real paris of the ville multitude but a phantom paris the paris of the Frankfiller the Paris of the boulevards, male and female, the rich, the capitalist, the gilded, the idle Paris, now thronging with its lackeys, its black legs, its literally Bonhomme, its cocottes and Versailles, Saint-Denis, Rouet and Saint-Germain. Considering the civil war was an agreeable diversion, eyeing the battle going on through telescopes, counting the rounds of cannon, swearing by their own honour and that of their prostitutes, that the performance was far better got up than it used to be at the Porte Saint-Martin. The men who fell were really dead, the cries of the wounded were cries in good earnest, and besides, the whole thing was so intensely historical. This is the Paris of MTS as the immigration of Coblenz was the France of M de Cologne.